Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Jennifer Waits. Hi, I'm Paul Reismandel. Hello, everybody. Eric Kine here. On the show today, we are taking a trip back in time to look at radio in the 1940s and 1950s. During this post-war period, women's roles were shifting in the workplace and in popular media. Television also arrived on the scene, bringing with it some but not all of the programming that people knew and loved from radio. Battles were also brewing over radio content, including violence, sex, and portrayals of family life. Our guest today, scholar Catherine Martin, has been poring over FCC complaint letters from this period and is here to explain what all the fuss was about. She is visiting assistant professor in media studies in Denison University's Department of Communication. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us today on Radio Survivor. Thanks for having me. I mean, I always like to talk about the FCC complaint letters. They're amazing. Yeah. It's always a hot topic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I haven't read any more recent ones, but the 1950s are just chef's kiss. <laughs> I know. And we can't wait to dive in to that. And, and, you know, to start off, we were thinking that, you know, by today's standards, the radio programs of the immediate post-war period might seem quaint and tame. So what, what did people find objectionable about radio during that time period? I mean, I'll, I'll say in their defense, a lot of them were quaint and tame. But when you got to like the husband-wife uh, crime shows, like Mr. and Mrs. North or The Thin Man, which is obviously based on the movie The Thin Man, they got kind of raunchy. Like at the end, there's always this kind of uh, coming together part where the husband and wife flirt basically intimate in often not um, in not too subtle terms that they're about to go get it on. So there there was some sex content on radio and especially in radio crime dramas. Uh, I, I think that um, they sex and went along with a bad girl persona to the degree where I in one and NBC uh, censorship, uh, their community, their um, Standards and Practices Department, uh, Continuity Acceptance, sorry, that's the name of the department. Um, they actually chastised someone, I think it was Molly Mystery Theater, for um, um, just having a bad girl be bad uh, by having her be sexy by saying, you know, sex is not enough to just make her bad. Just because she's overtly sexy doesn't mean she's automatically bad. Go back, do a little bit more work. So that, that's a little digression just to say that, you know, by even by today's standards, there could be some pretty racy stuff on radio that we just have forgotten about because that's not the stuff that gets preserved. A lot of the stuff that gets preserved is much more family friendly. Um, uh, but it's still out there. But uh, yeah, uh, anyway, sidebar. Uh, the uh, a lot of what uh, these complaint letters are focusing on is sexuality. Um, they're focusing on risque humor, but they're also focusing on things like race mixing and um, also on uh, either through music or through um, people going into urban spaces. As uh, J Jennifer Stover has pointed out in her book, The Sonic Color Line, urban was already a, a signifier for, for black in in the, this period it's not just today so they would object to race mixing uh they would object to uh and we the, should uh, we should define sorry. race mixing because i'm sure <laughs> older audiences or, or certain audiences know exactly what you mean but i mean what what is what is the complaint <laughs> race mixing referring to 
Well, in the in the post-war period, especially and during the during World War II, we were in an interesting period. With, and it came to race in the United States because the government is really promoting this interracial ideal where America is the land of the free. It's part of our, our, our fight with the Nazis, um, everyone's included. But at the same time, uh, white supremacy was really the name of the, the, the law of the land. So uh, most states still banned miscegenation. I don't have the accurate numbers, but it wasn't to Loving versus Virginia that um, state-specific bans on interracial marriage were completely struck down. Uh, there's, uh, you know, uh, there are not many, very many uh, black voices on radio. Uh, you know, Amos and Andy is the most famous quote-unquote black show on radio and early TV, and until it moved to TV, it was white actors playing the black characters. So anything that, any character that wasn't white, it, it was somehow seen as lesser than, stereotyped, uh, probably nefarious right. in some and, way. And, I mean, race mixing, does that literally mean white people talking to black people in a room? Uh, in a, yeah, I mean, it could. Uh, this One of my um, favorite, and I put that in massive scare quotes, uh, one, of my, uh, uh, one of the worst FCC letters I've ever seen was someone writing from the South, but there were also people in the North um, who felt this way, writing in, from the South uh, to uh, the FCC complaining about some variety show where a white woman had hugged a, a black child. And um, I will never forget, it's, the, the words were, I'm almost exactly quoting here, you know, it's, it's offensive to the feelings of white people to show a white woman hugging a black child on television in the early 50s. So, I mean, some people were very uh, pro uh, talking to people of other races, having relationships with people of other races, but there was still a very large part of the country that was very against it. And that was part of the impetus behind white flight to the suburbs. Um, it wasn't just about a housing crisis, which obviously there was a housing crisis after World War II, but um, a lot of white people fled to the suburbs to build a new all-white environment in which to raise their children in a, you know, a, a place where they could control. Um, and the, the city you kind of see springing up as this racialized other to which the white suburbs and quote-unquote normal American life is being compared. These are some pretty disturbing letters that you're talking about. How, what, what got you interested in looking into the letters in the first place? Was it running across something like the letter you just mentioned and realizing that there was something there that you needed to investigate? Yeah, I mean, so I started with these letters almost 10 years ago when I was working with um, my, I was a master's student. I was working with my advisor, Deborah Jaramillo, on her book on the TV code. And she was kind of writing this book about how uh, the television industry uh, put together its own self-regulatory TV code to um, censor itself to avert federal censorship. And so as her research assistant, I was the luckiest master's student ever. I got to go to the FCC files in DC and I got to go to NBC's files in Madison and just go through these letters and I would be photographing for them for her. And obviously she was 
really interested in photo in, in photographing letters about uh, about censorship complaint letters. The nice thing about the FCC is because they're a federal agency, they have to save all these letters. So you just get a much it does skew your sample of, of audience letters because they're all complaint letters. And obviously, if you're taking the time to complain to the FCC about something, you are really passionate. And also, from what I saw, probably a part of a organized group, either religious, there's a lot of PTAs in there. There are a lot of women um, exercising their power to speak um, as conservative women. Uh, but it's a very self-selecting group, and you don't get as many of the letters praising these shows. Um, so that's disappointing. But yeah, that's what got me into these letters. And I would just be sitting there with my you know, early master's student um, 2010s eyes looking and laughing at these letters that would um, basically blame low cut uh, uh, necklines on TV for all of the sex crime in the early 1950s. And I'm not really exaggerating here. I, I, I wish I had the letter, um, but it, these letters would just stand out to me as, you know, this is so extreme that they this person really believed that there had been no sex crime before low-cut necklines were shown on TV or found it a convenient excuse. But they also really remind me of, you know, modern complaints about video games causing crime or, you know, how sexualized images of young girls lead to them getting raped. And, you know, these are all these messages that you grew these conflicting messages that you grow up with, especially as a young woman in the society where you have to be a certain way, uh, you know, attractive, but not too attractive, sexual, but not too sexual, sexual in the right way. And you, I could really just see the roots of all these things, or at least an expression of how these things evolved in these letters. And it was just really fascinating. So, and I went on to do my, my dissertation after my master's thesis, I just really wanted to spend some time with these letters and really get to know them a little bit more. And I'm, I'm still working on that because it takes a long time. Um, but I think with my, with my book project especially, I really want to expand my um, – I want to try to deal with these women, especially the women who were writing these letters. A lot of them were women. I want to deal with them in a way where I don't agree with them at all. But I also want to take them seriously and see why they felt this way, um, see um, how what sort of influence they had on radio and then television, because I think they did have a big influence, partly because they're, they were loud, um, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, and uh, they threatened boycotts, they threatened to go to the FCC, they threatened um, censorship. And also, quite frankly, the network executives tended to be of the same social and political persuasions of them. I mean, uh, I think it's Craig Allen, I'm forgetting. There's a really good book about, about the Eisenhower presidency as a TV presidency that points out that most of the TV networks were a lot executives were Republicans and really aligned with Eisenhower and really supported him. So I think that there's a there's a big political alignment, not to mention the economic alignment of, uh, you know, uh, they want television and radio wanted to sell to suburban families because they bought more things. Well, and you've alluded to it's mostly women who were writing these letters. Can you talk a little bit more about who the people are who are writing in and why they're so angry? Yeah. Um, so a lot of them are, uh, it's, I, 
I haven't been able to trace any of the actual people. There's one who I think I might have traced, but I can't say for sure. She has a, a unusual name, and I think I trace her from New York to a suburb outside of D.C. Uh, but a lot of them are writing as behalf parts on behalf of or par as part of PTAs or um, with religious groups. Um, there will be some that are writing on letterhead from church, church auxiliaries. There's one really fascinating woman, um, I think from Ohio or Michigan or Iowa, uh, who uh, was writing um, to pitch her own crime show uh, that was a uh, part that would have been like uh, the elderly housekeeper to a Catholic priest. And she was writing on the letterhead of her Catholic organization uh, to try to boost her, her, um, her cred. And she really wanted the TV, the, the, no, it was still radio at that time. She really wanted the radio network to pick this up as a wholesome crime program where, you know, the woman is elderly, she's for, but she's a formidable um, uh, housekeeper and she's not sexualized at all, and it would probably be more like Agatha Christie than, um, though Agatha Christie could get pretty racy. It would be more Agatha Christie than, <laughs> oh my God, I love Murder, She Wrote so Yeah, much. that's a good, that, that, um, and that pitch, that particular pitch was not sent to the FCC as a complaint letter, that was sent to the, to the radio networks. Oh yeah, that was sent to NBC. Okay. So NBC is the only radio network at the moment with um, accessible files. And, do you do you have any idea the impact that the complaints you sort of alluded to um, that you feel like programming may have changed in response? Maybe talk a little bit more about that. Oh, yeah. So it's really interesting. I don't have direct connections from the FCC complaints. I mean, I think that the FCC complaints fostered a sense that the FCC should do something and the FCC um various commissioners would speak out about about um, regulating the airwaves. And really, uh, uh, I don't have it all at my fingertips, but uh, Debbie Harmio's um, The TV Code goes into this quite a, a bit. Uh, but uh, on the NBC side, what I see, find really interesting is that a lot of the complaints about uh, about uh, soap operas really did push the um, network during the transition from radio to television really did push the network censors at least to take uh, censorship more seriously and to rein in censor um, their, their, their soap operas at least. Um, my, my favorite NBC personality or one of them is Stockton, Stockton Helfrick who is the head of continuity acceptance. He just has the best name. And I think that eventually he went on to work for the, um, the TV Code Authority, um, the, the National Association of Broadcasters uh, TV Code Authority. And uh, he, um, around 1955, he really seemed to start a crusade against um, soap opera, radio soap opera producers, um, especially the Hummerts, um, Frank and Ann Hummert, who uh, were some of the major uh, soap opera producers. They had like an, basically like an assembly line. Um, production system. Uh, and uh, they also, interestingly, they pr produced some teenage uh, age juvenile shows. I think they produced Terry and the Pirates as well, uh, which was also a show that got uh, complaints for sexy women because it did have sexy women in it. Um, and uh, they... Um, Basically, what was happening is that you know radio was losing losing audiences to television in the in the mid 1950s, and um, so the soap opera producers were producing more and more sensationalistic storylines where um, 
women would uh, perhaps, uh, you know, stay overnight with a man who they weren't married to in a in a roadhouse, um, uh, and um, Helfrich would uh, was has a series of memos from 1955 where he's complaining about this and he's saying, you know, look, we really need to have a talking, have a sit down with the with the Hummerts and tell them this isn't acceptable anymore. We're getting wow. a lot of complaints and um, just from to, audience members. Just in case the word soap opera now is receding into the. 20th century <laughs> we're talking about a uh, daily serialized um uh story content like an hour a day of the same storyline right that they filled the airwaves with which is a unique yeah, thing mean, now there that's that's out of that's and that's called a soap opera because they were yeah. formally sponsored by soap companies because they were essentially aimed at housewives who would be the primary yeah. purchasers of soap yeah yeah and uh so these in, in the radio period, soap operas were usually about 15 minutes per day, mm. but often there would be a single sponsor like Procter & Gamble would buy an hour of time during the day and they would have four 15-minute soap operas, usually produced by the same person, back-to-back, um, and uh, pr- but they would use them to pr- advertise different products. Um, so this wasn't a Hummert soap opera, but, but The Guiding Light, uh, which until it was canceled, I think in 2009, was the longest running radio and then television soap opera. It was produced by Erna Phillips, and it was um, sponsored, at least the, the radio run that I've heard was sponsored by Does, um, which is a, a laundry soap that keeps white, uh, kept white, white, it's whiter without red hands or something. I, I'm butchering it, and I'm yeah. so embarrassed. Uh, yeah, because you would a, have been <laughs> washing clothes by hand often at that point yeah. before. Yeah. You know, what's interesting to me is this push-pull between uh, sort of the, the federal regulation and then the networks here, right? Yeah. And, you know, you, you mentioned sort of this TV code, right, put on by the National Association of Broadcasters. And that's the example of the industry attempting to self-regulate in part to head off being regulated by the federal government. Right. You because know, if we can establish standards, then, well, then we circumvent uh, federal intervention on, uh, with regard to content. I, I wanted to yeah. check in with you, Paul, and just like for the listeners and for myself, remind us like the FCC at this time – did it have the power to censor the radio? It's getting well, no, these complaints I mean, from, so, from listeners. So the, the FCC has always had the power, uh, some degree of censorship power. Um, it, 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 it is no in, in sort of fundamentals. And please, Catherine, if I'm getting this wrong, please correct me. Um, it, it's no, it was no different in 1948 than it, than it was in, in, in 2018. Um, in that there was always the the requirement and the ability to regulate for the for the for the public uh, interest and necessity, right? Which is interpreted many different ways, um, and so certainly the FCC could regulate and and, and right. tended to regulate more in in reaction to more right than than to than like sort of setting standards and rules, Catherine. Yeah, well, so the FCC did have the power to regulate, but it was more of a passive power. They could right. regulate through um, through licensing decisions. The FCC is actually explicitly prohibited from censoring radio content, except for obscenity. Um, so one one of the really interesting things about these um, these uh, letters to the FCC is you also get the responses to the FCC, and it's a form letter that has some variations. You know, the first and last paragraph will usually change. 
But the form letter uh, basically has this pull quote from, I, I want to say it's section 230, but I might be confusing that with uh, something else right now, uh, that basically says the FCC does not have the power to censor individual programs. And the FCC does not have the power to do script approval. And a lot of a lot of the letter writers were asking the FCC to do that. They were like, these people who put on radio, you know, they don't they don't know who is responsible for what part of the radio production. So they would sometimes think that the FCC was responsible. Right. And the FCC would often tell them to go uh, to uh, respond, to talk to the sponsors, to talk to the the networks. Now, the FCC, especially after World War II, was a bit more activist than previous FCCs. Uh, the FCC after, uh, was, you know, um, FDR's FCC, uh, Franklin, Delano Ro- uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's FCC, he had put some more um, progressive, uh, more, more um, uh, of, of people on, on the FCC, and they were people who had a different idea of what the public interest, convenience, and necessity is than um, than more laissez-faire uh, uh, FCC chairman. Um, I'm forgetting the name. I think it was one of Eisenhower's FCC chairman. Actually, was a big had a big scandal because he was caught on like the the yacht of some Florida station owner. Uh, so they, he was definitely not interested in regulating. Um, but. Uh, FDR's FCC was more interested, so they did issue the blue book um, of trying to lay out more um, uh, definite standards of what so what actually the public interest meant in um, in the 1940s, and uh, that the blue book interestingly was it was the report and order on chain broadcasting. I think is what it was technically called, but everyone called it the blue book. That is actually um, the uh, the. The, the policy document that forced NBC to sell its second radio station, or radio network. NBC had two radio networks um, starting in 19, late 1920s. When they launched, they launched NBC Red, which was their more commercial-facing, um, profitable, popular network. And then they also launched NBC Blue, which was a parallel network that had more public service programming, more, um, you know, slightly less profitable. I wonder which one they sold off when the FCC was able to make them sell one off. Um, NBC, NBC Blue became ABC in, in the late 40s uh, when they were finally forced to sell it off. Uh, so there, there was like a more regulatory anti-monopolistic push in the post-war period. So I think the networks were also much more worried about, about censorship and about federal regulation. I mean, before uh, before the TV code, before the National Association of Broadcasters put the TV code into effect, the uh, there had been a few bills in Congress uh, to censor television, and so they were really were averting something. They they were really worried, and as soon as the TV code went into effect, those bills got dropped. Catherine, some of the things you're talking about are seemingly women talking about protecting children from salacious programming or from violence on the airwaves. I'm curious, you know, nowadays we think about certain types of content airing late at night. Was there discussion, were these complaints aimed at things that were broadcast during the times of the day when children's ears could be hearing the shows? Maybe talk yes. about that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's um, children's delicate ears are definitely an issue. Um, uh, th- yes, uh, NBC 
has always been like the more socially, um, or at least it was at this time, the mo more socially conscious network. They at least framed themselves as socially conscious. So they did for a while have a, a policy where crime shows couldn't be aired until after 9.30 at night. Um, it didn't, it only it lasted like less than a year because their affiliates complained because crime shows were like the, the biggest bang for your buck. Um, you know, variety shows are great. They're popular, they're flashy, but they're very expensive. Crime shows are cheap and they get consistent audiences. Um, uh, yeah. So, uh, crime shows were very profitable and very popular. Um, I think it's like, uh, they they dominated the airways if during World War II and, and after. And World when War you're referring II. to crime shows as a radio genre, we're talking about uh, fictional stories in which uh, I'm assuming a cop or a detective, you know, uh, catches a bad guy who does stuff. Yeah, yeah. There there are different variations on that. So there's either the cop show, there's the detective show. There are um, very few shows from the point of view of a criminal. I think that The Shadow maybe started as a criminal, and like Boston Blackie was a reformed criminal, um, so he could be a little more in the know about criminal ways. But yes, there, the, there was a, a detective of some kind solving crimes. If it was a female detective, she was probably an amateur or she was an old lady, but you, or a young yeah. lady. She it's, was not of childbearing age, usually. I, I bring it up just because now in the 21st century, I think uh, most crime shows are true crime. So it's a, you know, yeah. that's more of like a salacious documentary discussing. Well, I don't know actual, about that. Right. <laughs> Maybe well, a podcast. We're, yeah, we're yeah, I know. Our, we're switching around of, the What about genres CSI, in, in the 21st Law and Order, <laughs> dot, dot, Ripped dot. from the headlines, though. Yeah. Mayor of Easttown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> plenty, plenty of crime shows. Well, and, and I know, Catherine, you're very interested in crime shows. And, um, and you talk about the subgenre that I never heard of before, crime sitcoms. Maybe oh, yeah. <laughs> tell us about this magical subgenre. Oh, yeah. Well, the crime sitcom is what I was kind of referring to earlier. It's usually the husband-wife detective pair. Um, and they were basically all kind of descended from the Thin Man. Um, and by that, I mean the screwball comedy version of the Thin Man, not Dashiell Hammett's actually very morose Thin Man book. Uh, I, mean, I but, just read uh, Dashiell Hammett's Thin Man, and I, it's all in there. The, it's just dark, 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 drunk yeah. humor. But he also, the husband and wife are uh, genuinely in love, even though they've been married for, a lo for, for more than a year. And um, yeah. it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it all depends on how you read it. It, it. But anyway, I could talk about The Thin Man yeah. for a long time, the book. No, and I love it. And you're right. It, it, it is the same story told with, like, just a slightly different tone. Um, uh, yeah, but uh, so a lot of them were based on The Thin Man. Uh, there were um, the ones that I've managed to track down are uh, Mr. and Mrs. North, which is one of my favorites. Uh, um, there's uh, Adventures of the Abbots. There's It's a Crime, Mr. Collins. It's a Crime, Mr. Collins is actually a very thinly veiled ripoff of the Adventures of the Abbots. The Adventures of the Abbots moved from one network to the other ne to another network, and then the original network wanted its show back, so they just very loosely knocked it off because you could do that. Um, and, uh, usually it's a, they're usually based on novels, uh, uh, the adventures of the Abbots is, I think Francis Crane wrote the novels, uh, 
Mr. and Mrs. North. I'm blanking on the name right now, but that was a series of novels that started in the New Yorkers, and I think that was actually a husband-wife pair writing those. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously Dashiell Hammett for The Thin Man. Most of them are, are male detectives when their wife is forcing her way into the into the act of detecting. But Mr. and Mrs. North, part of the reason I love it so much is that Mr. North is actually a publisher and his wife is really the better detective. Um, and that one, she's a very Gracie Allen character, partly because uh, Gracie Allen played Mrs. North, uh, Pam North, in the movie that came out uh. in 1941. I haven't been able to track down this movie. Uh, I've the reviews that I've read say that she was very good and fun and silly, but it was a piece of fluff. Uh, but uh, what I find really interesting about these shows is that it's got a wife. There, there's a wife who's theoretically supposed to be at home, having kids, taking care of the family, and she wants to work. And not just like Lucille Ball wants to work and I Love Lucy, where Lucy's always trying to find a job and then gives up at the end. In, in these ones, especially Mr. and Mrs. North, the wife pushes her way into into the the cases. Um, she often will force her husband to come along with her, and you know, I I I feel like, especially in the in the ones like The Thin Man or Adventures of the Abbots, where the wife frames her desire to accompany her husband on his investigations as jealousy. It feels like that's just cover for her to justify wanting to uh, to uh, investigate. I mean, she's she's ser- theoretically jealous because the husband is, of course, going to encounter however many femme fatales, blonde bombshells, grieving widows who might be sexually vulnerable um, and need of a, of a strong crying and a strong shoulder to cry on. Um, and she wants to stop that. But uh, the, the woman also really wants to investigate. She's really proud of her ability to investigate. And that's one of the few areas where uh, a woman could work in a non-feminine coded job because usually a woman is either a secretary or a school teacher or a wife um, on in, in radio comedies. And in these ones, she's, uh, she's getting in, in trouble. She's putting herself in danger. Uh, and were and those, to go back. Oh, sorry, uh, what? Oh, and were those shows then um, particularly prone to complaints? Is that something that um, disturbed these letter writers with seeing, well, hearing a strong woman on the radio working? I think that it, it's interesting. Uh, I, I think so. Uh, the, the complaint letters are open to interpretation because they are often vague. They'll complain about the sexuality in The Thin Man, uh, but they won't say exactly what they're complaining about. Uh, and what I why do found- you think that is? Why, why do you think they're vague? I, mean, that I find that I find that odd because I think if I look at subsequent, say you know, late twentieth century complaint letters, they tend to be more specific about very specific instances. Why are they? Why is it simply because they can't even bring themselves? Or to to, to to name these these uh, delicate circumstances, what, why, why are they so vague? I mean, I I do know. I think there is a certain amount of that. I mean, there is a letter about the thin man complaining about exposing children to the facts of the birds and the bees, or or I think it's just maybe they just say the facts of life. So I think that there is, um, especially 
among some of the more religious letter writers, uh, an aversion to that. But I think that also to go back to that um, comment I uh, I found in one of the uh, censorship documents at NBC about how just making a woman sexual is not enough to make her evil, I think that there was this sense that working women, and especially women who worked in the city and who, women who worked in crime, were just inherently sexual, and there was something ooky about that, but that was like the... Um, the most visible and also socially acceptable thing to complain about uh, because there's a lot of paranoia about uh, during World War II and after World War II about juvenile delinquency, especially focused on teenage girls working outside the home and women working outside the home where they were away from uh, their parents' protection. And a lot of that also, a lot of scholars have shown how that really gets um, translated into paranoia about their sexual virtue and paranoia over their physical safety. And uh, that seems to be coming through in these letters at, as well. But again, I can't, I haven't been able to find any of these letter writers to interview them. Right. I'm not so, sure that they would be able to put it in words if I did. So is it safe to sort of say that in the tenor of the times, you could just sort of take for granted just the implication itself was... We, we all it's sort of it's sort of it's like saying, well, we all agree that dot dot dot, you know, portraying a woman in this manner, wink, wink. And you don't have to wink. Right. That it, it, it is pervasive enough in maybe the the um, the discourse of the times that uh, that you ju- you simply don't have to be so explicit. Right. And, and in part, you know, I guess it's, it's sort of uh, it's some indicator of where kind of social power is at the time, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, I mean, women's virginity was still prized as a possession, and women were having sex, but they weren't supposed to, at least not supposed to talk about it. Um, and uh, especially after World War II, when we had this kind of resurgence of more conservative values taking over, I mean, there were a lot of different values and a lot of different political viewpoints fighting for primacy after World War II, but the more conservative, um, what we now call it containment culture, uh, the post, you know, the post-war containment of sexuality and family uh, domestically as a way to fight uh, communism abroad uh, really uh, made things, uh, made it even more difficult for people to admit to liking sex or uh, to uh, going out of the home. And I mean, is it... Is it a, too much of a distraction to talk about how radio audiences would never have heard a sex scene on, you know, there wouldn't, you wouldn't hear, uh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't hear a sex scene on the radio in these decades. So the, what the, what the, compla- or would you, or would you, I guess, yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> or so what the complainers are complaining about is, is usually innuendo that they have to read into or, or how how far across the line did radio scripts get in the 40s yeah, and 50s? I'm, I'm curious about that, too. And if, you know, you're talking about this containment culture that's happening post-World War II. Um, you know, I know in, in, in the film, in films and cinema, we may have had some racier content earlier on. Is the same true with radio where... You might have had but some they, like they would, pretty in the pretty for, out there in the content. late forties in film. They would kiss and then it would fade out and then it would be the next day. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, so there, there would be implications of sex sometimes. And I mean, again, from NBC censorship documents, what I have is like you know, 
line line edits where they're cutting out excessive sighs and excessive protests um, by women and like cutting out implied rape. I think that when they cut an implied rape, they say that the, they saved the poor woman from a fate worse than death, uh, which is saying something. But, you know, about about the value placed on women's virginity at the time, uh, that, that ra- being raped is a fate worse than death. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so they, they were definitely NBC's censors. And NBC, again, saw itself as more socially um, uh, pro. What's the right word? More, more, um, more socially responsible. Uh, so they were trying to they that and that manifested as being more conservative. I want to know more in, about in the trashy cuts. radio networks then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would love, I would kill for CBS's uh, files. I, I would, I the, maybe not everyone, but I would, I would. There are some, yeah. I, I, I would love to have CBS's files or ABC's files as well. Uh, but uh, they, they, they unfortunately are not accessible at the moment. Uh, but, you know, there are uh, instances of women uh, who, I guess, play acted more performative sexuality being kicked off of radio. Like, for example, Mae West, this was not in the 40s, this was in 1939. She uh, got kicked off, off radio for um, flirting with Charlie McCarthy and my students, when I play this for them, uh, they're, you know, it's actually, I, I have to explain some of the references to them. Like, I have to explain what it means to go up and see someone's etchings. I have to explain to them that that's innuendo, but that was very un- well understood innuendo. Oh, that's not the, the first time Mae West was kicked off the radio. Because we actually, Matthew Lazar taught us on Radio Survivor 300 episodes ago or so about an incident in which Mae West appeared as a voice actress in a sketch I think it was an Adam and Eve sketch. Oh, this was the same show, actually. Okay. She appeared in two, 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 um, two sketches on, on the right. – uh, it was the Edgar Berg and Charlie McCarthy ah. show, and it was Adam and Eve. And, um, and Matthew Lazar points out that uh, the sketch was written by a man. Mae West is performing with a man. Uh, Mae West doesn't even have any lines that are overtly sexual. It's just how she uses her voice to – and the audience is uh, clearly rolling in the aisles. You, like, usually radio is thought, especially radio audiences in the 30s or 40s are like not so savvy, not so smart. And this, these audiences were, were 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 roaring with laughter just because of how Mae West delivered a line. And uh, Mae West was sensed, was was kicked off the radio for life, but no one else was punished in as as far as we know. Yeah, well, and also that one's especially interesting because Matthew Murray has a piece in uh, this really great old collection, Radio Reader, that's edited, I think, by Michelle Helms and Jason Laviglio, talking about that incident as well. And he points out that the Adam and Eve sketch had actually been performed on the radio before, uh, but it had been performed by a black woman. Um, in the Mae West role. And so this goes back to the the race mixing thing and the sexuality thing uh, where it was white women who weren't supposed to express sexuality, uh, whereas black women, uh, they would put sexuality, uh, radio performers would put sexuality onto black women as a way of putting it off of white women and also making black women seem like sexual aggressors when in fact they were the most likely to be um, sexually harassed and sexually abused. Uh, I think uh, Jacob Smith, I think it is, has a really great chapter on uh, blue records in his book, Vocal Tracks, 
and blue records is, uh, for those who don't know, is pornographic records. Um, and so these are, you know, pre-radio. And uh, he compares the uh, blue records of uh, that featured white women's voices with the black women's voices. And whether these are actual white women or actual black women, we don't know because uh, there was a lot of black black voice recording. Uh, but uh, in the incidences where it would be a white woman's voice, there would be a lot of double entendre. The white woman was much more likely to be portrayed as like accidentally making sexual jokes and not really understanding, whereas the black woman would be much more likely to be portray portrayed as a sexual aggressor. Uh, so I, I, I mean, building on this, I'm in my book, I'm kind of building toward this argument that, you know, one thing that people were really worried about white women doing when they did urban things, when they went into the city and risked their virtue and their safety is that they were, um, you know, throwing off their, their whiteness. And, um, if you can, if, if you can throw off your whiteness in some way, and I'm not saying this is like some revolutionary act as I'm not saying they were trying to be more racially progressive because I don't think they were, but um, they, that there were a lot of uh, white conservatives, especially who didn't want representations of white people acting um, like what acting in a way that white people were not supposed to act, acting, violating white middle-class norms in such a way that showed that those norms were not natural and that those norms were in fact socially constructed and that femininity was socially constructed and not just natural. It, it's so interesting to hear how all of this plays out with popular culture and, and these attempts to control what people are hearing on the airwaves and seeing on television so when tele, you know, you're talking about this transition from radio to TV, when TV comes along, are you starting to see content that is much more like what these letter writers are demanding? Yeah, it, it happens gradually, because especially in early TV, the TV, the networks were just so desperate for anything. Uh, but very quickly, what happens is I, I trace about five female detectives. I, I think that's right. There, there are several female detectives on radio, especially in the late years of radio. And I, during World War II and in the, in the early 50s, and I think that that's partly because women were the most consistent radio listeners and uh, the networks really wanted to keep female listeners. Uh, but almost none of them make it to TV. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. North was on television for two seasons. Uh, first on CBS and then on NBC. I think that's the order it went. And I think it only made it over to television because its sponsor it was Colgate for the first season and Colgate gets what Colgate wants. Uh, Colgate, well, you know, they're, they're a, a, a major sponsor. They spend lots of money, but then they dumped the series. So, but I know that the series was aimed at women because the next sponsor was alternating between Revlon and uh, a linoleum maker. I can't remember. I think it was Congolium or something, but they made, they made house floor, linoleum tile for floors. Uh, so you can tell it's aimed as a series aimed at women. Barbara Britton played uh, Mrs. North, absolutely gorgeous. And uh, so the, uh, the show lasted for two seasons and it actually did stay on TV in syndication long after that, but it was um, never, it, it didn't make it to a third season. Uh, other shows didn't make it at all. Um, NBC actually uh, did a pilot, I Another thing I would kill to find, they did a pilot uh, with Agnes Moorhead 
in um, uh, his, oh, what's her name? Uh, one of Mary Reinhardt's characters, I want to say Tish, uh, an older female investigator, but I've never been able to find it. It was never aired. It was apparently, according to the archives, it was well-received, but it was never aired. And uh, the only other female detective that I know about that was on an early network was uh, Anna Mae Wong played, uh, it was the, um, on, on Dumont, which was the smallest TV network and didn't last very long. She played um, uh, the, the lead in the gallery of Madame Lutzong. Uh, and uh, there are no, ep- no records of that at show. There I've are no never episodes. heard of that television network before. Uh, oh, yeah. Dumont was uh, very short-lived. So I don't know how how much of, you know, for the, the, the brief history of Dumont is that it started at the beginning of TV when TV was really rolling out, in the, not the beginning of TV, but when TV was rolling out after World War II, Dumont started up as, a, as an, another independent network. And then the TV license freeze started in 1948. And uh, for various reasons, both regulatory and technical, uh, the FCC didn't um, issue any more TV station licenses for, uh, I want to say, 1948 to was it 1952 it was a it was a long period and so NBC and CBS and ABC had had a jump on um, on getting TV licenses they had more affiliates they were able to sustain themselves for longer Dumont just didn't have enough affiliates to um, sustain themselves because when you're a network you've also got internet interconnection costs wow. you have to uh, supply good programming. They couldn't keep their affiliates when NBC and CBS and ABC had more money. So therefore, because they're still making money off of their radio business for the, for the first, I think almost decade, don't quote me on this, but for the first almost decade of, of, of television, radio really funded television. Maybe it was just five years, but um, for a long time, radio funded TV. That's why you don't see another network until the eighties. Exactly. Yeah. And and even then Fox managed to like stay under the network level for the longest time so they didn't have to follow all the regulations. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Catherine, I, you know, you're really interested in some of these lady detective dramas and I'm curious going forward to today thinking about radio and podcasting and even television do you see modern day parallels with some of these shows that you seem to be enamored with from, from the forties and fifties? Yeah. I mean, I think we keep on doing, it's almost like the the same script keeps on getting replayed where there'll be a, a wave to make female detectives more empowered and more progressive and more, you know, for want of a better word, feminist and equal to men. And then, um, you know, they, they, they'll maybe start out being a little more empowered and then they get less empowered and they're still wearing their spike heels and they still have a male partner almost always. And uh, so there, there's really this cyclical pattern. They're always where, in their mid-20s. Oh, yes, they're always in their, they're either always in their mid-20s or they're old. Um, there's something about like they can't be of of childbearing age. I have to admit I haven't seen the mysteries of Laura. I need to still go back and watch it. I think I was doing my orals at the time, and so I missed it. Uh, but yeah, so you see this this cycle get keep on getting replayed. Um, 
I mean, you have Honey West in 1965. Anne Francis lasts for a season. She insists that the show was canceled because it was cheaper to import the Avengers from the UK. This is, you know, uh, the Emma Peel Avengers, not the Marvel Avengers. Uh, but uh, you have to specify that now, especially to students. Uh, and uh, uh, so that lasts for a season. And then in 1974, you have a couple, uh, like, movie of the week uh, uh, female detective shows at the beginning of the 70s, but in 1974 you have uh, 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 Get Christy Love starts and Police Woman starts and also Amy Prentice starts. And Amy Prentice is a show that I'm really interested in. Uh, it starred uh, the late great Jessica Walter as the first female head of detectives in the San Francisco Police Department and it spun off of Ironside. And NBC only gave it one, it gave it three episodes. And, uh, uh, you know, Get Christy Love was the first primetime drama, not comedy, but drama to star a black woman, Teresa Graves. And ABC gave it one season. Uh, and it was definitely trying to be black exploitation, but uh, ABC didn't want to um, actually. Well, you couldn't have a black exploitation show on given TV censorship at the time. Um, it's and so Police Woman's the one that lasted. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that the we can get Twitter behind this movement to see Jessica Walters' uh, cop show from 1974. I think I think every single person on Twitter would would be enthusiastic about this movement. I mean, I I think Twitter if if anyone can do it, Twitter can do Twitter it. Twitter really <laughs> loves Jessica Walters. That's all I have to say about it. Yeah. Also William Shatner's in it too. So, um yeah, so you can find the first two episodes. You can find the backdoor pilot from uh from Ironside, but for the life of me, I cannot find any of the regular episodes. Wow, they might. Uh, yeah. And she, she's great in it. That's um, amazing. Yeah. yeah. And then you have that again in the 80s with, like, uh, I, I know Julie Dachi has talked about this more with, like, uh, 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 Remington Steele and, uh, and uh, Murder, She Wrote. And uh, I think Moonlighting started around the same time and also Cagney and Lacey. And all of them got... I mean, I love Murder, She Wrote, and I think that Jessica Fletcher, A, she, she absolutely murdered them all, and B, uh, she, uh, she, um, I think she gets a lot more credit than, than or she, she deserves a lot more credit than sometimes she gets for like, being that kind of sneaky sort of, uh, 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 you know, uh, investigator where she lets, she lets the men think they know what they're doing, and then she comes in, and I think that that's you know, really resonant for women because... You can watch that and feel like, you know, you understand where she is. You understand her frustrations. You understand that she's playing the game. But that's the same kind of quality you also have in 1950s shows like Mr. and Mrs. North, where she's crazy like a fox and she plays this sort of crazy zany character so that men will take her, not take her seriously, but let her do what she wants to do. And so she's still having to play the same game from a different angle, you know, 30 years later. And I feel like that happens less now, but I can't think of a lot of shows where women get the same level of respect as men. I mean, honestly, I think maybe Lucifer is one of the better ones. I mean, because there's a, you know, aside from the whole devil, angels, paranormal thing going on, the male partner 
is ridiculous, but he actually respects his female partner and actually like supports her and her intelligence in what, a way that. What show did you just reference? Uh, Lucifer, Lucifer on Netflix. It started out on Fox, but now it's on Netflix. But unlike a show like Psych, where you've got the you know the the savant young boy male detective who you know works with a female detective but doesn't really respect her very much. Um, uh, I'm. You're making me think about a whole bunch of things. I, I loved Remington Steele. And, you know, if people didn't see Remington Steele in the 80s, this detective invented a male owner of the agency, Remington Steele, so that people would hire her. So, and then this guy shows up and pretends to be and, him, but he's not. <laughs> and it's Piers Brosnan, so he's so he's so glamorous. Uh, yeah, no, and I mean, but you see what happens with that... Uh, Sorry, I got sidetracked from this point, but what happened with that show is that, you know, in the first season, it starts out with her feminist manifesto, like the literally the story of how Remington, the how the Remington Steel Agency got started is is for one of better words, like the intro sequence. Like she tells the story about how, oh, uh, you know, a, a female investigator was just too feminine for the uh, for the male clients. And so she invented the male superior. Uh, but then in later seasons, the intro credits get much more romantic and it's much more focused on her, on their, their relationship. And they like cut out Laura Holt's original male employee, uh, who kind of, I mean, honestly, he was annoying. Uh, but he also served as kind of a competition for Remington Steele's, for her affection with um, the fake Remington Steele. And they put in this much more maternal, grandmotherly secretary who just wants them to get together. Um, so they kind of put, start pushing towards that in a, in a way that is just like taking a step back from its original feminist aims. And I mean, that's, you know, Reagan era backlash for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's amazing to see these parallels, the backlash, you know, continuing and, and with Moonlighting, too, that that ends up becoming a show where it's all about whether or not the male and female are going to get together, you know. Yeah. It, yeah. Well, and Moonlighting is the one where the, that's like the Moonlighting curse is named for that. And the problem is when a show get just becomes all about whether or not they'll get together, you know, eventually they got to get together. And if they do, or if they don't, what do you have left? And it, it can't just be about the romance. It's also about, you know, the fighting crime and the doing yeah. interesting things. Kat Catherine Martin, I wonder if uh, sort of to round out today's uh, radio show on Radio Survivor, we're talking about radio stories uh, and how they how they lead into understanding, you know, today's television stories. Um, can you make an argument to to care about radio in the first place? It's like I I know that like when I was growing up in the eighties, like I did not consider radio to be the beginning of television. I considered it to be like um, like just not as good. Right, because that's how it. Like, why why care about these stories at all, and and study what you study? Yeah, well, I mean, on the most basic level, pretty much all of the genres that we have today. I mean, they continue to evolve because genre is culturally determined. But all of the genres we have today are basic. Were basically their their building blocks were established on on radio. So even like we mentioned Law and Order earlier, Law and Order is basically a retooling re of Dragnet, which was a radio show first and was actually the first 
crime radio show that that an, or I think it may be even the first radio show that a network deliberately moved from radio to television in part to answer criticism about crime on television um, at NBC. So the the police procedural was established on on radio. And second, I think that, that as people are discovering more and more in um, in uh, as podcasting becomes more popular that, you know, with shows like the passenger list, or even I love Eleanor amplified so much because it's just a, a, you know, a kind of a redo or a revamp of the, the, the girl detective show. Uh, I, I think that people are realizing that there's so much more interesting stuff you can do with, with audio storytelling that you can't do with TV. Um, I mean, it's, there are similarities in the storytelling t- styles. You can tell similar stories, but it's a different quality of story. And I think I think that that's part of why female detectives disappeared on television because showing women, when you add in the the visual, showing women in danger is so much more powerful than implying that women are in danger. Uh, it's so much more powerful to see you know a sexy woman than it is to hear about one. But at the same time, when you hear about one, you can identify with it in a certain, in a, in a different way that you could identify with a TV character. I mean, I think that, I can't remember who was writing about this. It may have been Alison McCracken and her piece on, um, on Gracie e. Allen moving from radio to television. But um, when Gracie Allen and Burns and Allen were on TV, were on radio, both men and women identified with Gracie as the character, as the main character. And then when it moved to TV, uh, they had a, the men would start identifying with George, who's just mm. a much less interesting character than Gracie. Uh, so I think that there is something about uh, the way that radio opens up identification positions and really lets us hear the world in different ways, imagine the world in different ways than uh, TV. TV is great. I love TV. I watch so much TV. But, uh, but it, I think that TV does foreclose these options that radio gives us. How wonderful. Thank you for that answer. I'm so happy that you're... Uh, I'm just making a big old gesture because the, that's the conclusion of the podcast. Or that's the conclusion of the radio show. Now we can go into the And podcast. that is... Yeah, that was such a great place to end great question yeah, and yeah, great wonderful. answer <laughs> let's let's go on who who has the next uh... well so I, i'd like to follow up a little bit on the sort of the influence of the audience here right and in in, yeah. in, in in the letter writing and and do, do you have a sense from you know and this might be more from other records and the letters themselves that that these groups that that were complaining to both the networks and the fcc about the content they heard on radio did they feel themselves successful? Did they did um, they feel their power? I think that's that's part of the thing that I that's part of the research I still need to do. I mean, I think that they never it was never enough for them. Uh, right, uh, of course. Yeah, yeah, it's never enough. But I think that uh, 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 I, I know you guys have talked to Jennifer Wong uh, a bit about she's done some more work on like uh, women women's groups in her dissertation writing to the radio networks. And for a while, they did feel like they'd been successful in pushing the radio networks to uh, 
have more of certain types of programming or to be less explicitly commercial. But I think that my my sense is that they they were never quite satisfied. I mean, the radio networks and the TV networks never stopped programming crime, but they did, you know, women basically disappeared from crime shows. Uh, Which is sort of... Or at least secretaries, the good, the good girls did. Disappear. Right, that's an interesting, not, not the outcome necessarily that... that right. Everyone that anyone was looking for. I mean, but then because we, you know, it's not as if these letter writing campaigns ever stopped. Right. I mean, you know, and then, you know, and they seem to have been organized under various groups and ages over time. And then we have like the appearance of the parents television council in in the 80s. Right. right? Is that correct? Or 90s, Um, you know, which is well known for, you know, every time. There's anything the least bit that seems like it's stepping out of line, especially with regard to sex, but also violence. You know, there's a record of thousands upon thousands of thousands of, of these days in the Internet age, you know, boilerplate, uh, copycat kind of letters uh, that I could file with the FCC. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, I mean, it follows in the same tradition, does it not? Yeah, absolutely. And you, you can actually, I mean, I've seen postcards that I, I, I don't have at my hand at the moment, but there will be... The, Postcards and letters that have almost the exact same phrasing mm-hmm. and come from the same city and were mailed around the same date. And it's like, yep, they, those people wrote them together. They might have written them in church. They might have written them at a PTA meeting. But they object to these three sh- programs. Like I think it's like the Whistler Inner Sanctum and something else, they, the, the horror shows. Uh, and you can definitely see where they're objecting to them. Uh, I mean... Uh, one of my favorite letters that I, I didn't get a chance to mention was actually, if you want an example of the uh, of a letter writer who the NBC actually took seriously, there's this one letter that I just love um, from a woman named Marguerite Kuehling, and she was in um, running from New York. I think I think I maybe traced her to a DC suburb later in her life after she got married, but she. Um, was writing to object to soap operas and to juvenile sh- uh, crime shows and juvenile adventure shows. And uh, she, uh, this one always gets a laugh from my students because she basically says that, you know, if she did nothing but listen to soap operas all day, she wouldn't feel at all responsible for dropping cyanide in her, hu- in her husband's <laughs> coffee. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's really interesting because uh, her, her, um, her solution is like robust poetry read in a strong masculine voice or classical poetry read in a robust masculine voice. Some, the word robust and masculine are in there. Um, <laughs> Catherine, and, it's, what's oh, hilarious is like she was obviously watching lots and lots of this show. And so yeah. that's kind of cracking me up. Are, are some of these people secretly fans of these shows? Like the writing in, is that a way to kind of um, – is it like a confessional for them? Like, oh, okay, I'm not bad because I'm, I'm secretly enjoying this, but I'm writing in to complain, so maybe that absolves me somehow. That's really well, her excuse, I can't speak for her, her excuse was that she um, listened to them for a week just to hear what was going on. So obviously she'd been told that this was terrible, and she felt that she needed to do an experiment. And uh, she concluded her letter by saying, by the way, I'm 26, not 62. Um, uh, and uh, so to assert that she was young and not just an old crank. Uh, but uh, I think, I mean, what the networks would generally respond. Now, this letter, I think it's notable also because it got forwarded to, like, the chief of programming as, you know, a letter that was... Uh, 
articulate enough to be taken seriously and that they should actually bother to respond to it. And they do respond in some ways, like they point her at some programming, you know, all their cultural programming that she wanted was during the day or during bad times. Uh, but they also tell her that they t they're taking her seriously. Um, but I, they also point out that throughout this entire period, it was basically 50-50, apparently, from what, from what, if the networks are to be believed. And I kind of buy it. It's basically 50-50. Half the people loved uh, soap operas and half the people writing hated them. Unfortunately, we just don't have a lot of letters from the people who loved them. Um, right. Because uh, those didn't get saved or those got forwarded on to the soap opera producer, uh. usually. I mean, you know, I think for all of these self-appointed kind of watchers, you know, uh, uh, monitors, right? I, I mean, I think as Jennifer points out, you have to wonder, you know, because we have and the phenomena continues today. Uh, and, and, you know, you know, when you see more of these automated or, or sort of copycat kind of letters, you don't presume that maybe everybody really watched it or watched it quite as closely but somebody had to right? somebody had to. right i'm thinking somebody about, had to i didn't really follow it as closely as i would have liked to talk about it but i'm thinking about that um overwhelmingly stupid uh netflix show scare that took place last year with the um with the young girls you know tween girl show from france Maybe that's – we'll just stop right there. Yeah. That was a big oh, one. Oh, was that – that was the one – yeah, that was the one uh, critiquing se sexualization of girls. Yeah, that, but it's like that. a culture war explosion of of dumbness around a show that most people didn't see. I didn't watch it yet either. Well, <laughs> um, so, so I want to kind of bring us back to radio uh, yeah. real quick in a couple minutes that I have. Um, oh, so for – and I wonder, so, I mean, you followed this particular period. I don't know if you followed past the, the 50s. You know, and I wonder if, if the sort of this interplay, especially when audience changes as one, both sort of drama declines as a, as a radio format, and two, radio becomes, again, more local, and television prevails as the national format. I don't know if, you, if you've looked into it all or you have any sense for this, this sort of uh, interplay with, with audiences and, and their complaints. So unfortunately, especially for radio, I just haven't done that. I know that Susan Douglas writes in her Listening In book about uh, the uh, the spread of like personal transistor radios that would that teenagers could bring into their rooms and listen to jazz in their rooms, which was also threatening, you know, because it's race music. So that's like the the crossing of you know I, I kind of call it like oral slumming. A-U-R-A-L, because, uh, you know, slumming has always been a thing that, that, that middle-class white people have liked to do, whether it's, you know, wealthy people going into the literal slums in the Victorian period or, you know, going into the um, inner city via media. Uh, it's, it's, there's a similar sensibility behind it of being curious about the other in, in sometimes really genuine ways and sometimes um, not so genuine ways, sometimes much more... Um, hurtful ways right right I, I i just you know i just wondered because it is this there's a fairly rapid transit rapid ish uh transition there um yeah. I, I as i mentioned i do actually I, I have to go uh so Catherine, thank you very much i really appreciate it uh i could we could go on and on but uh eric and, and jennifer are here to ably fill in
the show I was referencing on Netflix that um, caused a lot of controversy, and I have no idea how to measure it other than, like, what? Like, uh, the amount of... Uh, like, there wouldn't be an FCC letter complaining about a Netflix show, but that was called Cuties. And I yeah, actually don't yeah. know anything about the Cuties controversy other than um, it seemed overblown in a way that yeah. made me not even want to know more about it, the culture war yeah. implications of... Um, yeah. But I wonder, actually, that leads me to a question I did have about, well, I guess it's a two-parter. I apologize for that. Um, okay, maybe I'll ask the first part and then hold my it's second It's okay. Part. I'm an academic. We ask, like, five-part <laughs> so questions. So the first part is, do you think that these letters represent, like, an early indication of the culture war that we are currently in the midst of this, like, this this uh, this more right wing disapproval of an entertainment industry that that is perceived as more left wing. Absolutely. Okay. Um, absolutely. Yeah. No. And I mean that was one of the f- first things that ever struck me. It's like this sounds so similar to like the, you know, I was at, in high school during Bush two during W's uh, 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 presidency, and I just I remember. You know, like the abortion debates and I mean, abortion isn't even a thing that would have been talked that could have been talked about. Uh, But, um, you know, if you want to think about like, uh, uh, you know, LGBTQIA matters um, on TV, apparently Bob Hope like would not stop joking about Christine Jorgensen, um, the uh, whose um, story was memorialized more. in the Danish girl, you know, the, the, um, uh, first person or the, the GI who went right. abroad to get so a the, sex change operation. The, one of the earliest, uh, out trans people in the world. Sort of a, a celebrity, yeah. like really a celebrity. Cause she glamorous. was gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She really was. And also cause she'd been a GI. Like, right. Right. I, so you got I the remember two. looking up the, the, like the headlines, like, where like GI does this, so she gone. She went from being like a sign of of American masculine prowess to uh, absolutely gorgeous this woman. And I mean, it's not that they were objecting to him making fun of her because yeah. they they were not pro trans, but they just didn't want her mentioned at all. He was he was, uh, he was doing it too much, and that's on the radio. That was no, that was on TV. That was I television. Think. Uh, so that was uh, yeah. I think that was a later later. Uh, TV files that they were really objecting to. Well, and it, it definitely makes me think about, um, you know, because you were talking about the religious, you know, some of these might have been church organizations and people like Reverend Wildman, who had huge influence on on television and would garner all these letter writers to write to advertisers to basically um, convince advertisers not to advertise on shows that had mention of things like abortion or LGBTQ content. And, I mean, it's it's pretty amazing, you know, watching some television from not all that long ago where abortion was such a taboo. Like, teen television shows, um, I'm thinking about Degrassi, it aired in Canada with an abortion storyline, but then when it aired in the United States, they had to remove that because there was such fear about backlash. Yeah. Yeah. There was a really good blog that I don't think is being updated any, anymore called Remember the Abortion Episode that like evaluates how people, um, how TV shows treat abortions. And 
you know, they can do a really good job. Like I, I, one of the best rated ones was like Jane the Virgin's premiere where she doesn't end up having an abortion, but they present it as an option and as a good thing to know you have a choice. Uh, but yeah, that wouldn't have been a thing at all. Uh, and I mean, the, the TV code explicitly forbade, uh, you know, mentions of sex crimes and sexuality. And also um, in a real sop to the feeling specifically of Catholics, uh, they um, they didn't forbid divorce, but um, NBC, especially Stockton Helfrich, was really worried about divorce because of the Catholics, because the Catholics were really loud about divorce. Um, but he, um, sorry, the, uh, the TV code uh, and some earlier um, uh, radio codes that weren't as binding, but like N- NBC had its own radio code that basically said, you know, divorce should never be presented as a satisfactory uh, resolution to marital problems, uh, you know, which, I mean, sorry, some people just shouldn't be married. <laughs> yeah, so there, there, there was a lot of uh, encoding of these very conservative, um, religious-based cultural values as the norm. So my, was, uh, was any of this content, you know, because I'm, I'm thinking back to very early films where you might see things that you wouldn't see, you know, decades later, um, was there were there early radio programs that carried content that yeah. was more liberal a pre-code that, radio? Yeah, was <laughs> was there pre-code radio? I mean, I'm sure there was. I have not heard much of it, uh, just because I mean we don't have a lot of a, a lot of the records. Uh, I th- that's something that I actually would like to do, to know more about and do more research about. I know that the radio networks and especially the networks were always more conservative. NBC, when it, they first, um, uh, listeners want to look up the ad that NBC ran when it first um, launched its network. Uh, what They um, were talking, it's basically all block text talking about how NBC is going to be a custodian of the airways, if they're going to be um, you know, act responsibly in the public interest, well, and because that, because radio and television are 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 advertising sponsored free media that comes into your home as opposed to a film, yeah. which you go, you know, adult films. There is a layer of uh, believable yeah. boundary. You, like kids aren't going to see those movies. You could have more adult themes. Yeah, uh, yeah you have to choose to go see it. And also at this time, movies were also very censored yeah. uh you know um uh, i mean uh the reason part of the reason that there are three versions of the maltese falcon three mm-hmm. film versions of the maltese falcon is that the first one was pre-code so they couldn't re-air it right 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 the, uh-huh. right, the f- three versions of uh, different films not three edits of the same film oh um, yeah yes yeah, three different versions one of which is a screwball comedy with betty davis in it because right, they tried to do the thin man yeah yeah and i like it but hit. Um, it was. I didn't know yeah. that until recently. I, 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 I want to go back and talk about The Thin Man a lot. But my, the second part of my first question was, if, if all of these letters that, that mostly religious women appeared, you know, apparently were writing um, seemed to be like the, the, the very beginnings of, uh, of the culture war, like fizzling under, in, in, our, in, our, in our country, um, who knows if that's a good metaphor because that, like, presumes like an arc of culture war or some kind of 
Um, <laughs> that yeah. presumes that we were ever not at war over culture. Yeah. Um, but what I was wanted to ask is, uh, were, did you find any letters that like were outside of that framework that were interesting, where people wrote in with opinions or critiques and uh, had more of an independent viewpoint on, on what was uh, bothering them or, or why they were writing their letters? Well, I do have one really interesting letter that's actually pro-crime um, uh, uh, or, you know, interested. That's how I code it for in my Excel file for for um, for ease. But uh, there's one woman who wrote to um, Jean Wang, who was a um, very prolific radio, writer of radio crime dramas. And uh, he um, saved this one letter from this woman. She was basically like, she was a housewife, I, I'm assuming. Uh, she was trying to write radio scripts and trying to be taken seriously, but she kept on getting rejection after rejection. So she asked him for advice and also like, kind of critiqued one of his scripts, but still said she loved his scripts. And so it was really interesting to read this letter from someone who was uh, really uh, interested in, in the crime as puzzle mechanics. Um, there was another really great letter from another woman who liked, uh, I want to say it was like Man Against Crime or something, one of the early crime TV shows. But she really objected to one of the um, actors because she felt like he wasn't, um, I think it might have been Ralph Bellamy. Actually, I, sh I could look this up and find out. Uh, she rejected to one of she objected to one of the actors because he uh, was like not masculine enough to be playing a, a detective in her point of view. And I mean, she's talking on part of her family, but I also think that she, you know, that says something about like what she was attracted to. Um, not robust, uh, uh, not robust, not robust. Yes. Robust, robustness for men is important. Interesting. Um, that part where, as you look it up, the, the part where you referenced this robust reading of poetry made me um, it's one of the things I recently learned about poetry especially um, I guess before the age of radio was that a lot of it was just um, like nationalism and war propaganda like a lot of what popular poetry was what, so, so this idea of robust poetry to me just seems like more like um, you know uh, exaltations to the to the to the to the to, you know boys joining the military and yeah. becoming men, and I actually don't think that that's necessarily a wrong, uh, a wrong uh, you know, an un unfitting. I think that that fits with what she wanted because a lot of these letters are worrying about um, crime and this excessive like sensationalism and this excessive emotion that crime and sensation are causing, making children weaker. And it's interesting how like, there's this like slippage between children and women, uh, where often they'll go from talking about children to talking about women in almost the same breath, and it gets very hard to not think that they're that they see women as children, uh, or at least that you know women are responsible for taking care of the children. I mean, you know, this is a point when Spiro Agnew's wife is being, or is this Spiro? No, Spiro Agnew is Nixon's vice president. Uh, who was the Alger, his, uh, all right, I'm going to look that up. But while I'm looking that one up, uh, the, the letter about, um, it was the, the crime letter of, uh, she's, uh, m Mrs. Hayes says that um, she's writing to Donald San Sanford, who produced Martin Kane, which was another like private eye show. 
she um, she and her others in her neighborhood enjoy the shows um, because, and I'm quoting here, the stories are good, not too much murder, but for heaven's sake, why is it you have such a pinhead as Lloyd Nolan? He couldn't defend himself against a child of 10 years, let alone some of the men he is supposed to floor, end quote. And she rep- prefers Ralph Bellamy or William Goggin, and, but thinks that Nolan is a weasel. Huh. And I, I mean, I wonder, is that just like the timbre of his voice that bothers her? Like, Well, that's on TV, so I think okay, that that's okay. so he just why. His, uh, so, yeah, you have people who, are, uh, who want to be the producer of the show. Yeah. And I, kind of, I kind of enjoy that sort of fan critique that, you know, we obviously see, you know, we see that in different ways going forward. But yeah. to see that in a letter, maybe that was the one outlet that this, you had at the time was to write to the producers and have, with your fan critique. I was just reminded of an incredible radio show that a good friend of mine produced and re... Okay, so uh, recently at, at the conclusion of the Game of Thrones series on HBO... <laughs> My friend in radio, Richard Walensky, who hosts the literary book show on KPFA, a show that I'm just a weirdly huge fan of, um, he re-aired an old interview with George R.R. R. Martin from the 90s, when George R.R. R. Martin was primarily the main writer, I guess maybe even the showrunner, of the Beauty and the Beast television show. And the most the reason I'm, why I'm bringing this up is George R. R. Martin spoke with Richard mostly about how he was fed up with the amount of censorship going on in TV that they were at some point the compromise had become body count that the letter writers <laughs> the the letter writing women had convinced the censors at the network i forget which network aired beauty of the beast television show that the that the ultimate balancing point of this culture war essentially was that less people needed to die per episode <laughs> and so george r. r martin was complaining about how if they had seven bad guys seven bad guy henchmen die in an episode the censors would push them to make it like two and they'd have to do all of this ludicrous reworking of a script or a shot or the edit just to eliminate the number of bodies. And it was an arbitrary to him. It had nothing to do with the story. It had nothing to do with the quality. It had nothing to do with the fact of whether or not these opponents of the hero were good or bad. It was just a, it, it was a, an arbitrary number that really frustrated him. He talked about it in this radio interview for quite some time. And I thought that was interesting in contrast at the time to the fact that getting to be on HBO and and even though he was not the showrunner but the amount of uh violence the amount the body count of Game of Thrones is sort of famous um it's well, about you, a war a, across a you know a small continent and you think about the body count on the news and and why right. that doesn't distress people but but what you're saying Eric you know reading some of Catherine Catherine's work you know, you're really talking about control, this control that these writers want to exert. And what better way to control things than by getting the network or the show to agree to a demand like we only want two dead people on the show. And then you probably feel successful. Right. But I think for yeah. that, I think that was the thing. They wanted no dead people. So the censors were like, well, this is one thing we can fine tune 
to make to mo- to make them happy, but also to create entertainment that still people will watch. We'll just have less dead bodies. Well, and it's so interesting how you know in the in the U.S. especially, it's you know we do have more dead bodies, but sex is still something like that. I I'm trying to remember. And specifically, there was who, someone who's having sex. Dude. Who's like, having sex? Yeah. yeah, who's having sex and who's shown enjoying sex? Uh, I mean, you know, you you talk about how women are sexualized and used to sell things, but at the same time. Uh, especially on network TV, women, you know, are not shown enjoying the sex and they're not supposed to be unclothed um, in certain ways, whereas violence has generally been more accepted in the U.S. than in other countries as a, as a substitute for sex. Um, uh, the, the other one I was looking for was Priscilla Hiss. Uh, uh, she was accused of leading her husband astray in the 50s as a as a communist sorry this is about mothers mm, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm 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 going back and forth I'm glad uh, you're going back. Uh, uh, to go back to the the worries about mothers uh who were um that mothers might that women might lead their children astray you know priscilla hiss was accused of like basically leading her husband into communism um by either being a neurotic and unha- unhappy housewife or having affairs or being too sexy or being too intelligent. It was like her intelligence got tied up with her sexual threat in a way that uh, that really shows through in these letters. Um, and it's somehow women are like sexually dangerous, but are also neurotic spinsters, but also making everyone too emotional. Um, uh, and and this played out in academic theory in the seventies with uh, like the um, uh, the worries over the um, sentimental American novel being making us all fe- the feminization of American culture was a I keep on coming bringing up these things and I don't remember the names because it's, it's okay. I've been mov- I've been moving for a month but uh, uh, the, <laughs> the, the uh, you know this whole um, you can also see like this the, the roots of this feminization of American culture thesis where you know as soon as religion became less Calvinist and less strict and we got novels then everyone got too emotional and now we're not strong enough to fight the new wars mm. and protect protect the world. Um, so in that way, violence is more acceptable than sex and emotion. But um, but violence also causes excessive right. emotion. That makes me, Jennifer, unless you have something on your mind, I just want to talk about my reading of The Thin Man. Because I recently oh. engaged in a, but this is like, this is me going off on a very personal tangent. So let me let you ask a good question. Uh, well, no, I mean, I'm just I'm just thinking about what you're describing in just the very, the very way that shows have become or were gendered from the start and, and thinking about soap operas seen as, you know, the domain of, of women, of female viewers. And, um, yeah, I mean, just how, like how depressing and upsetting all of this is that, that, that there are, that there were, and probably continue to be these, discussions about feminization being a bad thing and um uh, so anyway i'm just nodding my head basically and and i know that there's a lot a lot more that we could say about soap operas as as a space that's probably more transgressive than people realize too well and especially because soap operas also laid out all of the groundworks for all of the melodrama that you 
see in a show like Game of Thrones that actually makes you care about a show like Game of Thrones. That's yeah. all soap opera shit. You know, like the yeah. serialized storylines, the complex characters, uh, the ongoing narratives. Uh, Elena Levine has a book out called Her Stories recently that's all about how soap operas helps lay the lay the groundwork for that for for complex storytelling but when it's aimed at a supposedly male audience which i really think game of thrones is uh then uh then you then it's quality but when it's aimed at a female audience like say when it's like scandal um uh, uh then it's seen as lesser like i remember um when i used to teach an American television class, I'd do a genre week and I'd just have them watch uh, Scandal and Breaking Bad side by side because mm. one's about an anti-hero man, one's about an anti-hero woman. But there are a lot of similarities between how they tell the stories and, um, you know, what the import of the stories is. But one of them is seen as art and one of them is seen as a guilty pleasure. Huh. I have to watch Scandal. So, um... I read all of the works of Dashiell Hammett this recently, this year. I don't forget the timeline of me sitting down. <laughs> I, I started at the first detective short stories, read the, t the two books that are available of every story uh, that his one detective went on, and then read the novels in order up to The Thin Man. So I became yeah. uh, the world's greatest expert in Dashiell Hammett for <laughs> that week. I knew, it, I knew stuff. Um, it took me a lot longer than a week. But what's exciting about The Thin Man, um, I had not, I didn't know what a hit it was until reading the, like, you know, the, 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 the appendix of the book that I have about how well, I, it, it appears as though I need to read a Dashiell Hammett biography next just to get my facts straight, but it would appear as though it helped launch his post-author lifestyle that uh, Dash Lamb never wrote another book after The Thin Man and part of that was the success of The Thin Man part of it was also uh, clearly his alcoholism and his poor, his poor health his tuberculosis um, but what's interesting about The Thin Man and why I can bring it up with you and maybe even talk about it um, I, I, and I didn't get a chance to watch the whole film I, I watched the first 15 minutes of the film recently on a streaming service before it was uh jettisoned from the library yeah. so i have to get back to it but i got i caught i caught a little bit of the tone of it um but first it is a departure for dashiell hammett as a writer in that um i do think that it's the first time his detective because every story and why dashiell hammett is worth talking about is i do have i'm not i didn't invent this theory i do think that <laughs> dashiell hammett's detective following maybe Sherlock Holmes is the like first hero of media that, that a detective that Dashiell Hammett authored, which was kind of a version of himself as, cause he was a detective before he was a writer becomes sort of the main character of just countless films, television shows and movies and other books like other writers coming after Dashiell Hammett wrote, detective characters that were that grew out of the the groundwork that Dashiell Hammett had created so it's it's fun to talk about him as a writer and the and the characters he created and Thin Man is fascinating because it's the first time uh someone's a husband 
it's yeah, the no, it, it, it's the only husband I think that he wrote. Um, yeah, I mean, I love the Thin Man. I love Dashiell Hammett. I think that um, it was Raymond Chandler in his uh, uh, what's the murder is my the, business. The art is of that then. Yeah, the uh, the simple art of murder. The simple art of murder. Uh, he writes that Dashiell Hammett took murder out of the drawing room and put it into the street where it belongs. Yeah. And I mean, I, especially when I was starting out my, um, my, my academic career, I mean, my master's thesis is on the adventures of Sam Spade, mm-hmm. uh, the radio show adaptation. Ooh, I've of never the heard Man. it. I, oh, it's, it's actually, you can find a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's really interesting and it's really good. Um, I think that I, I do think that there's, especially from, not necessarily from Hammett, but from Raymond Chandler's assessment of Hammett, there is a lot of misogyny. I, I think that I don't think that Agatha Christie or Dorothy Sayers really necessarily deserved um, the dismissal that he gave them. Mm-hmm. But there, he is a very different, very American detective in a in a way that's um, or you know his detectives are very different, and they did inspire all these other ones. And The Thin Man, especially, I mean, because there were what, like eight films, was it yeah. six or was it eight? Um, and uh, there's a you know they it intersects with with a couple different genres. It's like it's crime, but it's also the screwball comedy. Yeah, and it's actually one of the few screwball comedies where they're actually married. So uh, a lot of the issues with screwball comedy, when we're talking about married detectives, a lot of the issues with screwball comedy is that the screwball, you know, it's this uh, 1930s fantasy of a uh, companionate marriage where the partners are together on equal terms because we tend to forget it. But in the 30s, there was also an idea that marriage could be more equitable. I'm thinking of Um, uh, uh, what's the best movie ever Um, about, uh, about newspapers. Oh, um, was it His Girl Friday? Yeah, His Girl Friday. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that and that that one's great. Um, and you know, it all started with it happened one night. But it's this idea that they're you know like was Margaret Sanger was involved, and then someone else whose name I can't remember wrote this book called The Companion at Marriage to basically promote marriage as something that was not just a business arrangement, not just for having a family, but for something that was emotionally fulfilling because women were getting more educated in the, in the 20s and 30s yeah. and uh, able to support themselves and therefore might actually get divorced. So, um, so more progressive social thinkers were trying to save marriage by making it more a more equitable uh, arrangement and the you know the screwball comedy kind of really encapsulates that huh. uh but uh uh katrina glitter i think i i'm not saying her name right g-l-i-t-r-e she has a really great book about um about romance in hollywood film and she kind of traces the thin man films from the first one through to the last one which hap- which is uh, the last one i think was released in 1948 and like the changing relationship mm. is really stark. I'd be interested to, you know, obviously you haven't seen them all, but I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about that because it goes from she's trying to push her way into the investigations even after she has the baby because they have a baby. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, and those characters uh, would that, never have had a baby. Yeah. No, I mean, definitely. Well, I guess not, unless but, she wanted to. It was, it's yeah. a really great marriage. I actually, in a book by a misogynist writer, like clearly yeah. Dash Lama had troubles yeah. with with his relationships but, with lots of but like that that marriage is actually I mean much like I'm assuming his marriage to to Catherine Hellman was at the time like it's a good it's a good relationship for a yeah 
for a, for yeah. a drunk misogynist. Yeah. No. And yeah. No. It's a. So yeah. No. There's a lot of communication in in their literary marriage. There's a lot of um, listening. Like the man does a lot of listening. I think the funny part about the book, just to, it's like, not only is, I mean, the 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 idea of the wife getting involved and pushing to be involved in the solving of the the murder in the book, the um, it's the wife uh, pushing the detective to even do the job yeah. yeah he doesn't he's not interested he's burned out yeah. he doesn't care yeah. people keep trying to hire him and he keeps trying not to get hired um it's a very funny book yeah no and there was actually a tv show of the of the thin man but it didn't come on the air till 1957 and by then just to show you how much gender norms have had changed um she spends her entire time uh, it's like phyllis kirk is the um plays nora and I always forget the name of the actor, but he was like a tertiary Rat Pack member who was only tolerated because I think he married a Kennedy. Hmm. Very handsome, but um, anyway, um, nondescript. Uh, he, um, but the, but she's always trying to get him to stay home with her and not investigate because she doesn't want him to be in danger. But she accepts her role at home, so it's just kind of this very li- late fifties. Let's let's stay home and have a family, uh, and uh, but crimes keep happening, and and he keeps pushing to to be independent. Um, That's really fascinating, you know, as yeah. you're talking about the cha- her changing role in all of these media or all yeah. these film and radio yeah. and television versions yeah. of the Thin Man. Yeah. It tells it tells a a story for sure about yeah. cultural understanding of you know women. How much power women had, how much power, you know, if that power was threatening, um, if there was a shift as far yeah. as um, whether women should be working or in the home. Yeah. What sort of public, yeah, what sort of public influence they should be exerting? Because I don't, I don't know if I made this clear earlier on, but one of the things I find really fascinating about these conservative f- women who are writing these letters to the FCC is that they are also trying to exert power and influence in the way that women often have through their role as women. A lot of them are appealing to their role as women, or they're appealing to their role as mothers, which, you know, is a role that women have often used to exert power. And they're, you know, trying to have their power understood and have their power heard, but they're doing it by basically taking power away from other people and making representations of other people worse and reaffirming these patriarchal gender norms in a way. So, you know, I have some sympathy for them. I just, you know, wish they, wish they had been, you know, allies instead of, instead of villains, (laughs) instead of oppressors. Exactly. Exactly. It makes me, I don't think this is the right podcast or the right day. And I'm assuming Catherine Martin, just I'm just going to go out on a limb and assume that you haven't watched the latest Marvel movie in the theater, but we happen to be talking on the the week that that Marvel movie has been released, and it's the first one with uh, um, with Scarlett well, Johansson what, what, as yeah. as the as as the primary lead. It's the first Marvel movie. Well, no, I guess the I guess I'm out on a limb and I just fell off my limb because the the cat I, the one the other one I hadn't seen yet um, did have a woman as the central yeah. hero. And yeah, I, but I skipped that, that one step. also kept on getting pushed off. And right. 
I'm convinced that they only released the Captain Marvel movie when they did because they had to introduce her for Endgame to make sense. Yeah. Um, I mean, because they kept on pushing it off. They yeah. kept on delaying it, just like they kept on delaying Black Widow. And I have not seen it. I want to see it, but um, I'm not comfortable with the vaccination rates where I am living right now. Yeah. So I'm going to wait till it. I'm not paying the, the premium access yeah. on Where are Disney. you, Catherine? Oh, oh, I'm in Ohio. Yeah. Uh, Central Ohio. That is one of yeah. the strange things, if there are any historians in the future listening to us, <laughs> that like Jennifer is in San Francisco, highly, highly vaccinated San Francisco, maybe the highest vaccination rate in the country, I think. I'm not yeah. just making that up. I, Pretty I think, high. Yeah. I think yeah. Washington might be also very high. I'm in Portland, Oregon. Portland, Oregon is... Um, 70% vaccinated and that's why we reopened uh, and yet now people like us are faced with the do we do we go to an unmasked movie theater and do we sit next to an unvaccinated neighbor without knowing their vaccination status it's a very uh, strange time to decide whether or not to go see a film in public or to see a show in public right um, and it- and numbers are ticking up even, you know, in California, yeah. too. So um, I, think I know that LA just reinstated yeah, the mask mandate. Which I'm right? happy about. Yeah. I just got a strange. I'm sorry to change the subject like this, but it's yeah. it's still relevant to the times we live in. Um, that like, it, And it's, it's so weird and it's so uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, I just moved. I was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. which has also a very high vaccination rate. And I think my county here the vaccination rate is under 45 percent transmission rates seem to be low but there was also um, my town is very into the fourth of july and there was a four-day carnival uh, where almost no one was masked so it just makes me uncomfortable i wonder if we can bring that back to the radio um none of the pandemics (laughs) were uh changing history uh when when these shows were on the air so it's difficult yeah it's difficult to to measure and with that final thought that's the conclusion of this podcast of course there have been many pandemics since the invention of mass media including the aids pandemic um but uh of course it would appear at this point that uh the covid19 pandemic is the biggest has is the biggest uh health event of its kind in the history of mass media and we're living through it uh it's an interesting topic for a different expert for a different academic to tell me how other pandemics in the last 120 years have impacted uh radio television and mass media thank you to our guest today Catherine martin visiting assistant professor in media studies at denison university's department of communication uh, Catherine Martin's book project expands on her dissertation. You don't have to be a bad girl to love crime, femininity, and women's labor in U.S. broadcast crime programming, 1945 to 1975. Oh my gosh, what a fun topic! What a fun book, Catherine Martin. What a fun show! Thank you so much for joining us. Jennifer Waits produced today's episode. Paul Reismandel had to say goodbye about a half an hour ago. My name is Eric Klein. This is Radio Survivor. We are a listener and reader-supported enterprise. To find out how you can help us out, go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. We're a podcast that you can hear every week on 
our website, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to the show wherever you get your time-shifted radio. We'd love to hear from you, our listeners. If you have a show idea, if you have a critique, if you have some feedback, if, if ideas... If if you were if you were yelling at your radio as I often do, or or calling out uh, trying to help us answer a question that we posed uh, idly and didn't know ourselves, our email address is podcast at radiosurvivor dot com. You can also uh, reach out and communicate with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. We're we're on those social media platforms, the social media platforms of the uh, first decade of the twenty. 20- 21st century those are the ones we've we've focused on well we'll be back next week with another episode celebrating the world of sound and radio and history and community thank you so much for listening <laughs>